reading from the 25th verse of the second chapter of Luke. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Ghost was upon him. And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, then took he him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles, and the glory of thy people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. And Simeon blessed them and said unto Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be spoken against. Yea, a sword shall pierce through thy own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. I don't know about you, but I assume that you probably are somewhat like I am, that when you read the scripture, you look for models. You look for people that you can take and say, there's a possibility of my life having in it some of the characteristics of that life, and God doing in my life some of the things that he did in that person's life. I don't know about you either, but I find that there are some people in the scripture that I have difficulty identifying with. They're not of the same order of creature that I am, and so I just find that when I read about them, I look upon them to learn from them, but knowing that I'm not in the same category with them. I feel that way certainly about those strategic individuals that were God's choice people at the hinges of history and were giants that towered over all that were about them. Who can count on having a life in any sense like unto the life of a Moses? or an Apostle Paul, or some of these others. So I don't know about you, but I find myself going through Scripture looking for some common people, ordinary people, that the world is never going to build any great monuments to, and if it weren't for the Word of God, including them, they would never be mentioned. But there they are, sometimes nameless, but occasionally they have a name. This is the way with Simeon, the man to whom we have referred here in this passage from the birth narrative of our Lord. Mary and Joseph had taken Jesus into the temple, and as they took him there for their offering, an offering that you will notice they made as poor people, they did not make the kind of offering that ordinary middle-class Jews could make, but they came to offer a sacrifice according to that which is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons, and that reflected the financial status of the family into which God put the Messiah. Now, that always has brought some encouragement to me, that God seems to enjoy doing things and great things in small circumstances in an unexpected places. And so it was in a home where they could not even bring an animal. They just brought two pigeons or two turtle doves for that sacrifice when they brought their child and their first child to the temple. And while they, very ordinary, very common people, with a very uncommon baby, stood in the temple, 
a very ordinary man appeared. At least all that we know about him is his name and his spiritual condition. And if it hadn't been for his relationship to Jesus, we never would have known his name. And I have a suspicion that that's about the only way most of us will ever be of any great significance is as we relate to the Lord Christ. And so Simeon, we know his name and we know that he was a just man. And that's a remarkable thing, isn't it? A just man and a devout man. He was a godly man and he was a man of great hope waiting for the consolation of Israel. An elderly man. And now he finds himself in the temple and he sees Mary and Joseph and it was revealed unto him by the Holy Spirit. He had known that he would not see death until he had seen the Lord's Christ. He was in on God's secret. There were not a great many people in that day that were in on his secret. It took Peter three years to catch on to what was going on. And here is a fellow that knew before he ever met Jesus what was going on. God had come close enough to him and he had come close enough to God that God had intimated to him that he would not see death until he had seen the Lord's Christ, that the culmination of the hope of Israel, that the thing for which every person of God looked, he would have the privilege of seeing before he died. Now, he's a remarkable man in this sense. Common man, remarkable only apparently because of his intimate relationship to God and to God's spirit. Now, it's all the more remarkable when you realize the kind of day in which he lived and the kind of church in which he was worshiping that day. Because the high priest, when he came in, if he was like the high priest that was there just, what, 30 years later, the high priest was corrupt, the high priest was apostate, the high priest and the priests that were around him were people that were indifferent to human need and indifferent to the desires and purposes of God. They were people that were so blind that they could not recognize the Lord Christ when they had seen him for three years. And here was a man who, before he ever saw him, knew that he was going to see him. And when he saw him wrapped in a blanket or whatever they wrapped babies in in Palestine in that day, he recognized and knew the Christ of God. Now, I'm glad that God's secrets are not saved just for the Moses and the Davids and the Isaiahs and the Apostle Paul. And that some of these precious intimacies are open to ordinary people, just like me. Just like you, if you're in that category. God waits to share his secrets with people who will make themselves open and sensitive to him. Now, it's a beautiful thing that he, this ordinary, unknown, we're not even told that he was a priest or a prophet. We're just simply told a certain man. There was a man in Jerusalem and the man that any man apparently could be. Now what made him unique was the fact that the Spirit of God had worked in his life. And it's significant to me that it is explained in terms of the third person of the Trinity. We live in a day when there's a lot of talk about the Holy Spirit and there's a lot of preaching and a lot of witnessing. And that makes this passage all the more impressive to me because the passage is really almost more about the Holy Spirit than it is about Simeon. Now, you know, 
that's quite an ambition in itself, isn't it? It'd be nice to get to the place where your life was more a story about the Holy Spirit than it was about you, wouldn't it? And that really is what you've got here. And I'm sure this is the reason we know his name. Because his life was really more about the Holy Spirit than it was about him. He was an occasion for the Holy Spirit. So we're told three things about him, and these are the only significant things about him. These are the important things, and they all find their origin in the Holy Spirit, not in Simeon. The first thing is we are told that the Holy Spirit was upon him, or as the King James says, and the Holy Ghost was upon him. Now that automatically marks a man out as different. Not talking about native gifts, it's talking about a divine gift, the promised one of the Father that is given to certain people. Now in the Old Testament, and he represented the Old Testament age, uh, not every man was had the Holy Spirit upon him, obviously. This passage never came alive to me, really, though I played with it for years and looked at it and felt there was something here that I ought to be getting until I had the privilege of talking with one day, having lunch with and listening to Harold Lenzel, who's the editor of Christianity Today. And he said, you know, Dennis, I read the Bible through every year. I read five pages a day, and that gets me through in my Bible on the 10th of December every year. And then I have three weeks to play around, read anything I want to, and then the 1st of January I start back on five pages a day and read the Bible through. He said, you know, I've been doing that for 34 years. And he said, after 34 years, you'd think a Ph.D. would have few things, few surprises left in Scripture. But he said the other day, or in that time when I was kicking around between December 10 and December 31st, I found this passage about Simeon and how beautiful it is and how it opened to me. And he said, Dennis, notice these three things about him. And he said this, you do not identify a person by what he has in common with other people. Now, you can differentiate me very easily from uh, uh, Keith Brown by simply saying that, well, Kenlaw's that bald-headed one. But if Keith Brown were bald-headed, you couldn't say that. We identify people by what they do not have in common with others. And the scripture says, and the Holy Ghost was upon Simeon. And that was the thing that made him different. Now, there's no question but that every person who is a believer, every person who is born of God has the Holy Spirit in him. But I think that what we're talking about here is something very different. There are some people who have the Holy Spirit within them, but there's little evidence that what I feel in this text is being said, that the Holy Ghost rests in power upon them. And that's a differentiation that if you miss, will make the difference between an ordinary life that is of little use and an ordinary life that is of eternal use. Now, in the Old Testament, when the Holy Spirit came upon a man, it meant that he was for exceptional purposes because you only get people like Moses and Joshua and Gideon and Jephthah and a Samson and a Saul and a David and a prophet who is described as having the Holy Spirit upon him. And that really was what qualified a man to be a prophet of God, the Holy Spirit to come upon him. In Ezekiel, it's beautifully said that the hand of the Lord, and the hand was the symbol of power, 
And so really what it was saying was, and the power of the Lord was upon Ezekiel, or the Holy Spirit of God was upon Ezekiel, and he prophesied. Now that's something of what's being said here about Simeon. The Holy Spirit rested upon him. That was the secret to the success, the spiritual success of his life, and it will be the secret of the spiritual success of your life. I have never known a man greatly used of God who did not have an unusual relationship to the Holy Spirit. You read the life of John Wesley Hughes and you will find that the significant event of his life that made the difference was the day that he received the baptism of the Holy Spirit when the Spirit of God came upon him in power. He'd known him for some time within. But that day it was not a case of him possessing the Spirit. The Spirit possessed him. And out of that came this institution. He would have been simply another member of the Kentucky Conference of the Methodist Church if it hadn't been for that. That was the thing that made the difference in a man like Henry Clay Morrison, who was president when I first came to Asbury. He was a successful preacher, brilliant speaker, great future ahead of him, might even have been a bishop. Probably would have been. But one day when he was pastoring the Methodist Church in Danville, Kentucky, with a hungry heart, he went to a Presbyterian preacher and said, what's wrong with me? What I preach on Sunday, I can't live on Monday. And a Presbyterian preacher said, what you need is what John Wesley talked about. Isn't that interesting? Now he said, we don't use the same terminology you use or John Wesley used, but he said, it's the same reality that in a man's life, after he becomes a Christian, he needs to come to the place where he can differentiate between life in the flesh and life in the spirit. And out of that came that experience of the baptism of the Holy Spirit on Henry Clay Morrison's life. And Asbury Theological Seminary sits over there, which he really produced for all practical purposes after he was 79 years of age. like Abraham and Moses and some other people. But what was the secret? The same secret was here that was here that the Holy Ghost rested upon them. Now, you know, we live in a day when people don't hear a great deal about that except in charismatic circles. But it's significant that both of these men received the baptism of the Holy Spirit without ever speaking in an unknown tongue and preached it and had thousands upon thousands of people who came to know the Baptism of the Spirit without any concomitant evidence like that. They preached that the evidence was divine love that would take over a person's personality and imbue it, permeate it, until he was possessed by God. But that was it. That was the key. All right. So that's what made Simeon, Simeon. And that's the reason we know about him. The Holy Ghost came upon him. Now, what happens when the Holy Ghost came up, comes upon a man? There are two beautiful things that, that, are, that are said here in connection with that. The first thing is, it says, after the Holy Ghost was upon him, it says, and it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost. In other words, he had happened in his life what Jesus said would happen if a person would let the Spirit do it. You remember that Jesus said about the comfort when he has come, he will guide you into all truth. 
And so here is a man, ordinary person, taught not by the university professors or the scribes and Pharisees, but taught with the Holy Ghost. And what did he learn? I'm extremely fascinated by what he learned as he listened to the Holy Ghost. One of the things he had was, of course, in Hiles Geschichte. Now, if you don't know what Hiles Geschichte is, you should uh, ask uh, Dr. McKinley or one of the other historians, except that it has that Hiles part, the holy part. Maybe you should ask somebody from the Bible department. But what it is is holy history, what God is doing in the world. Do you ever wonder what God is doing in the world? I know a lot of historians who don't. But this man had found the key to human history because he said, you know, I'm not going to die until I see the one for whom the ages wait. He knew the culmination of history, that it was to be in the Christ. And he was going to have the special privilege of seeing him and recognizing him. He was in the world and understood what God was doing in the world. And the only way you will ever understand what God is doing in the world is for the Holy Spirit to come upon you and touch your mind. Clear away the cobwebs and the mist, the clouds, the darkness. Break the chain of death that's there and release you to where you can understand what God is doing. Beautifully, it lifted him out of the normal narrownesses that confine most of us. I don't think I've ever known a man on whom the Holy Spirit rested who did not have a broadness of spirit about him. And if there is any broadness of spirit in some of us, it's due to this. If there are limitations on it, it's because we have not been as open to him as we ought to have been. But let me illustrate. He stands up and says, The great Nunc Dimittis, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace, according to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles, and the glory of thy people Israel. Now, you know, you would have gone a long ways in that temple in Jerusalem to find anybody else who had a, the vaguest interest in a Gentile except to stomp him under his foot. Because when Peter looked at Jesus and said, we know that you're the Christ, and Jesus said to him, I go to Jerusalem and suffer there at the hands of sinful men, Peter was distraught. He'd been taught very carefully that when the Messiah came, he would trample underfoot every Roman soldier that had ever set foot on Palestinian soil and the Jews would reign supreme and the tables would be turned. And here is a man living in the midst. Racial prejudice? Surely. All the other prejudices and obscurantism that you could find, living in the midst of it, but God through his spirit had lifted him above and he was looking for the day when the Gentiles would worship right next to him. And he would have the privilege of worshiping right next to the Gentiles. Now remember, a good Jew couldn't drink water out of the same cup that the Gentile drank out of or eat at the same table with him without being defiled. And Pentecost had not taken place. He had had none of the advantages of Peter 
But I'll tell you something. When a man is taught of the Holy Ghost, he will stand head and shoulders above the narrownesses and the prejudices and the obscurantisms of his day. Because he's the Spirit of God. Not the Spirit of your group or mine. He's not even the Spirit of Asbury. He's too big for that. He's the Spirit of the Lord God. Now, this gave him hope. I love the fact that it says that he was there in the temple worshiping, waiting, anticipating, looking. The beautiful thing is he was not looking for something outside history. He was looking for something inside history. He was not the victim of his circumstances saying, man, things are bad and they're getting worse and the whole world's going to the dogs and look at the priest and look at the temple and look at the corruption and it was all there. But he was looking for something high. And he said, God is going to do something. He was not hoping in what he could see. His hope was in the one whom he couldn't see but whom he knew better than the ones that he could see. And he said, he's going to act, and he's going to save us, and he's going to send us our salvation, his salvation. It excites me to know that an ordinary man can be lifted above his circumstances, know the purposes of God, be clued in, and be living in terms of what God is going to do. Whenever the Holy Ghost comes upon a man, you can count on it, it will, he will touch his intellect. That's the reason that I have no qualms about in an academic institution, a liberal arts educational institution, a week devoted into revival. Because I will tell you, if the Holy Ghost ever comes upon you in all of his fullness, it will do something for your intellect that will make a radical difference in every intellectual endeavor that you ever touch or share in. You know, there are so many who want to be relevant. And by relevant, they mean that they want to be relevant to their time. You know, it's possible to be so relevant to your time that you're eternally of little consequence. And here is where a man can gear into what God is doing and keep his feet anchored in his own context and in his own world. Now, the third thing is, it says that he was led by the Spirit. Let me say one other thing here. I forgot it. He had an insight into the ministry of the Messiah that nobody had at that time, except people like him. Peter listened to Jesus for three years and did not know at the end of three years what this man knew before Jesus was born. In fact, Peter had lived through the crucifixion before he knew about Christ, what this man knew when, he, when Mary had him in her arms. You see, Peter said the Christ will reign. He needs to be king among us. No man will crucify him. 
And do you notice what it says about him? He says he looked at Mary and he said, Behold, this child is set for the rise and falling again of many in Israel for a sign which will be spoken against. Yea, a sword shall pierce through thy own soul also that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. The first New Testament witness of the passion of the Messiah. It impresses me a great deal. All right, the third thing. He was led by the Spirit. Notice how it says, The Holy Ghost was upon him, and it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, then took he him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, you can take me now. I've seen what it's all about and you've kept your promise to me. The fulfillment of his life. Now, Harold Lindsay looked at me and said, Dennis, what if he had come in 40 minutes early, finished his business and gone home? Or what if he had come in 40 minutes late and Mary and Joseph had gone. But the fact that the Holy Ghost was upon him and he was led of the Holy Ghost put him right at the heart of where the action really was. There were many, many people that day who came into the temple and went out and saw it as just another day but it was Simeon with the Holy Ghost on him who saw the Christ. Now, you have your life ahead of you. The thing you want more than anything else is for your life to be significant and to count. You may say, I'll never be a Moses or a Paul or a Wesley or a Luther, but I'll tell you this. You can be a Simeon and if the Holy Ghost is upon you and leads you and teaches you, you will know, you will not miss what is important in life. You will be at the heart of what really counts. And what more could a person ask? But the key is not in your gifts or wisdom. The key is not in your cleverness or your grasping. The key is not in your willing or even in your working. But the key is in your relationship to him who is the sovereign Lord of history. And he deals with us in the person of the Holy Spirit. Do you know what it means to have him come to where you possess him? You're on the outside until the Spirit of God comes into you in new birth. Have you gone farther than that? Have you come to the place where he possesses you? Until you come to the place where he possesses you, there will be enough internal static and enough diversionary concerns inside you 
to keep you from reading the message accurately or surrendering to it adequately, and you will spend your life on marginal inconsequential rather than being where the crux of the action really is. Shall we bow our heads together for prayer?